are about to really, 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 really switch it up here in Sunday School. We've just finished 1 Corinthians. Um, we're going from the New Testament to the Old Testament, Epistle to Narrative. We're going from a book that is basically one extended punch in the face to this nice little book in the Old Testament that ends happily, as happily as any book in the whole Bible, except for maybe uh, Revelation. So um, there are going to be some challenges in this big shift we're going to make that I want to address just for two or three minutes before we dive in. Uh, the first challenge is that we're in a different genre of scripture. We are going from an epistle to a narrative. Epistles tend to be really straightforward. They just tell you what's going on. They use logic to connect the ideas. They speak very plainly about the truths that they're saying. Uh, narratives are different. Uh, narratives teach through the story. So for example, Ruth is going to be a book about how God deals well with his people, even in bad circumstances, but the, the book never says that. It never explicitly says that God is good and he's working all things for the good of those who love him. Actually, it just tells you a story where it starts off really poorly and ends really well. The story itself teaches. The difference between uh, listening to 1 Corinthians and listening to Ruth will be the difference between listening uh, to a lecture and maybe watching a movie. Both are certainly teaching truth and communicating, but in very different ways. Uh, Second challenge is we're going to be in the Old Testament now. And uh, in 1 Corinthians, was getting the gospel is very simple because Paul was telling the Corinthians, hey, this is what Jesus has done, and so this is what you need to do. It was pretty clear, pretty easy. Uh, in Ruth, uh, Jesus will certainly be present and showing up, but it will be a little harder to see. It will be a little more far off. Um, third challenge, we're in a new culture. 1 Corinthians uh, was a big city full of pagan ideas, full of immorality, drunkenness, false teachers, kind of like America in some ways. Uh, Ruth is a book that takes place in agrarian Israel in the 12th century BC. Most people in this book are nice. Most of them are very religious and pious. Uh, it's a very different culture. Um, finally, uh, I think a final shift is a shift in subject matter. First Corinthians is primarily a book about how we should live it's a book that takes the gospel and applies it to all the issues in our lives. Uh, Ruth is going to be a book about God's ways. It's going to be a book about what God is up to in all of the little details of our lives, from the nicest to the bitterest and hardest. Um, it's, I'm going to use a term a lot in this series called providence. Providence is simply a Christian word for God's rule over the world. Everything that happens, all of history, uh, under a rule of a sovereign and good God. That's what Ruth's going to be about. It's going to be about providence. All right, so with those challenges in mind, we're going to read Ruth 1 and uh, dive in. Here we go. <clears throat> in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Epaphrites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. 
Then she arose with all her wall to return, to the country, to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's pray. Of your ways this morning, thank you that, uh, Lord Jesus, if we just get a bit in your presence, heal us and restore us and strengthen us, and I pray you would do that now, in Christ's name. I want you to think of a 40-year-old husband and dad of two daughters standing at the grave of his 35-year-old wife. The cancer took her faster than he could have imagined. When you think of a mother of three children who has her house broken into, she's beaten horribly, and has her four-year-old daughter taken from her by the intruder. Think of a two-year-old boy whose drug-addicted mom can't or won't care for him. He spends his childhood bouncing around the foster system. He learns that rage is the only way to protect himself from pain. 22-year-old girl moves to Charleston for her dream job and finds a single life with her first job out of college is more like a nightmare. Think of a guy who feels like his life has basically been on hold for the last eight years, working the same job, no prospects for marriage, Friday nights are the worst. 
Think of the guy who's still awake at 3 a.m. for no reason but the second night in a row. Feels like he's losing his mind. All these are real people who have experienced what we call a bitter providence. Providence is a word for God's rule and reign over the world, everything that happens. Uh, providence is good because God is good. But sometimes things God brings into our lives don't taste very good. They're bitter. They're hard. They're hard to swallow. And uh, regardless of how easy or hard your life has been, we have experienced big and small bitter providences. We've had days at work that confound us. We've had sicknesses, funerals, fears, sleepless nights, unanswered prayers, secret sorrows. Some things are our fault. Some things just happen to us. And uh, whenever they happen, there are some questions that arise in our hearts. Like, why would God allow this to happen? How can God still be good and rule over a world where terrible things like this happen all the time to innocent people? How do I trust? This is probably the most, this is the most poignant one. How do I trust in God's goodness when it doesn't feel like God has been good to me? Um, and we're going to see the book of Ruth answer these questions. Uh, that really is the subject of this book. Um, God's providence is good from first to last. The message of Ruth, simply put, is that God makes the bitter things sweet. God makes the bitter things sweet. Well, the end of the end, just I just encourage you to go home and read this book. The ending is wonderful. Um, but as much as we want to maybe jump to the sweet stuff, uh, this morning, all we really get to look at is the bitterness. Uh, Ruth 1 is a picture of how God works in bitter providences. We'll see three things. First, that God does, in fact, give bitter providences to his people. Uh, second, we'll see him provide in those bitter providences. And third, we'll see that he doesn't always immediately deliver from bitter providences. Look at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine. Uh, it was the, time of the period of time when Israel had first into the promised land. Uh, they failed to conquer it fully, and over and over and over again through the book. Uh, Israel sins. God judges them by sending foreign enemies, and then they get really desperate and repent, and God raises up a judge to deliver them. Uh, but what that meant was that for most of the time of judges, their land was chaos. And this famine is probably either a result of God's judgment on Israel's sin or a result of the fact that, you know, armies are crossing borders and burning things and all that kind of stuff. There's no food. Just think about uh, what it would be like to be a five-year-old living in North Sudan or Syria right now. That's where Naomi's family is. They're innocent sufferers. Uh, and then it says, a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Uh, so now we have a bad decision piled on top of bad circumstances. This man, Elimelech, was uh, Naomi's husband, and his, his decision to leave Israel and go to Moab is almost certainly sinful and a lack of faith. Uh, Israel was God's land. That's where he intended his people to live. Moab was an enemy of Israel. They refused to help them on their wilderness journeys, and they were pagans. They had a god named Chemosh who 
uh, made his people offer child sacrifices. So that, that's, that's where uh, Elimelech chooses to go when there's no food. He goes to Moab. Um, so bad circumstances, bad decision. And then verses 3 to 5 tell us some really, really bad stuff. Um, Elimelech, Malon, and Chilion all die within 10 years. The narrator focused on what this means in verse 5. The woman, Naomi, was left without her sons and her two, or her two sons and her husband. Um, this is even more profound when we learned that the sons, uh, in verse 4, they take Moabite wives, and they have their Moabite wives for 10 years, but no children. So not only uh, do you have Naomi have a husband, and uh, two sons die. You have, her you have her sons take wives, and they're not able to have children. Barrenness, again, in the, sign in the Old Testament, uh, was either a sign of God's judgment or just a very unfortunate thing. So let's just see for a second uh, how this describes probably one of the hardest, most bitter providences in the whole scriptures. Uh, maybe, maybe Job is worse a little bit. But think about this. Naomi and her family innocent sufferers in a time of war. Okay, They didn't start the war. All right? It wasn't their fault. They were religious. Naomi was a woman in 12th century BC. She had no decision-making power. Elimelech went. She went with him. She, she wasn't part of the decision to go to Moab, probably. She gets there. Her husband and her two sons die. And when, we, when we talk about death, we normally associate that with the sadness of loved ones dying, and that's certainly here. Uh, but for Naomi, it also meant that she would live the rest of her life in extreme poverty. Women weren't given the right of inheritance. They weren't, allowed, they, they weren't able to work to provide for themselves. They relied on their husbands. And so a, a widow of a late age who's not marriable is, is destitute. Almost everything that could have gone wrong did. Um, I remember uh, when the day Nora was born. This isn't really a bitter providence at all, but it's just a, it's an interesting... It's interesting how life works. Uh, we woke up the day Nora was born, not knowing she'd be born that day. And uh, we live in the back of a cul-de-sac. Most of you guys have been in my house, but we live in the back of a cul-de-sac. And we wake up, and a drunk driver has run our, run our mailbox over, which is just strange. And we get downstairs, and there's water uh, all over the downstairs floor because the AC guy who came to our house yesterday did not do his job, and our entire laundry room flooded, went all over the house. And uh, Sarah looked at me, and she said, you know, I always said it comes in threes. You know, I wonder what the third thing's going to be. And, you know, 12 hours later, Nora was born. And that's a blessing, right? Kids, kids are a blessing. Um, but it's very interesting. Um, you have probably felt this. When one thing goes wrong, it seems like everything goes wrong. Typically, trials come in tidal waves. They come all at once. And that's what happens here. Um, Naomi doesn't just have one bad thing happen. Everything. She is bereft of everything in her life, except perhaps personal health. Um, but notice, this is very important, notice whom Naomi credits with all these things happening. She doesn't say it's the devil. She doesn't say uh, it's just life. This is how life goes. She specifically says over and over again, God has done this. Verse 13. This is the second half of the verse. It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out Against me. Uh, verses 20 to 21. She says, middle of verse 20, for the Almighty 
God. The, this, this name connotes that he rules. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly, bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord, has, the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? She's just, she's just saying uh, what the Bible says all over the place. The Bible says God, God rules over everything, even the bad things that happen. Uh, Sam, Samuel, uh, you can actually go here. First Samuel 2.9. It's actually just one, one page flip, depending on how big the print is in your Bible. First Samuel 2.9. Uh, sorry, uh, 2, 6, and 7. It says, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. The best stuff and the worst stuff. God rules over those things. So, from what we've read so far, uh, Naomi uh, seemingly is innocent. She hasn't done anything wrong. And yet, she has been dealt a very very bitter providence. And so I think uh, an application, to say two things, I think we need to let uh, this truth hurt our heads and humble our hearts. So hurt our heads and humble our hearts. I think there is this uh, deep human desire for things to make sense. For life, for me, to, for me to be able to look at my life and say one plus one equals two. And the way, the way life has gone, when I, when, I, when I am good, good things happen to me. When I am bad, bad things happen to me. That's how I want, I want life to work. I want it to be in this neat little box. And uh, God's ways are not that way. And if God really is who he says he is, if he really is uh, the Lord of lords and the King of kings, if he really is infinite and his ways are higher than ours, then there will be times when we look at our lives and things do not make sense. Uh, John Piper said famously that... Uh, one aspect of Christian discipleship is having new and paradoxical, contrary to reason, categories created in our heads to believe the Bible. Like the fact that God is 100% good, that like a father has compassion on his children, he has compassion for you, that he loves you, that he has a plan for you. And yet, sometimes, for seemingly no reason, you will suffer. That's a category that we must have in our heads about God. We must believe that about him, embrace that about him. We should, uh, we should avoid saying that the devil is the only reason things are bad or that God won't give you more than you can handle. The truth is much more complex than that. But more than that, I think we should let this truth humble our hearts. Um, I think that many of us, and we don't, we don't see this until stuff goes bad, but I think many of us walk through life assuming that things will go our way, feeling entitled to things going our way. Uh, we might be okay in our brains with bad things happening to other people, but when they happen to us, we look up at heaven and say, what the heck? Where are you? you know, I thought you loved me. And um, this passage is very clear. that Sometimes providence is bitter. We should humble ourselves before God and embrace not, not embrace that the Father can bring these things. Now, I'm not saying that's going to make it easier. Because a part, a part of the hardship of suffering is suffering like an angry person, like someone who's grumpy about what they're going through. And if you can just humble yourself before God, like 1 Peter 5 says, embrace, yes, sometimes providence deals bitterly. And I, I need to embrace that. 
find joy. So just, just, I would just encourage you, humble your heart, embrace. If you're suffering right now, embrace it. This has come from your Father in Heaven, and He cares for you. And he, He's, he's going to work this out. But also just prepare yourself for bitter providences. Guys, you should not be surprised and angry when it's time to go to someone's funeral. Right? That's, and, and there's a sense in which that's life. And I, again, sometimes death surprises us. It's hard. But if you prepare yourself, prepare yourself for bitter provinces. Have, 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 have Bible verses ready for you. Have truths. Okay. Um, God gives bitter provinces. That's the hardest part of this whole lesson. But we also see here that God provides in the middle of bitter providences. Look at the way he gives faith and a faithful friend to the suffering Naomi. Look at, uh, look at verse 6 and 7. Okay? Naomi arises with the daughters-in-law to return from the country in which she had heard that the Lord had given his people food. Now remember, Naomi knows God has done this to her. God has stretched his hand out and harmed her. And she decides, even though Ruth and Orpah have family connections in Moab, that she's going back to Israel. She's going back to where she belongs. Even though the same God who hurt her rules over that land. Um, very unlike some of us who skip devotions or skip church when life gets hard, right? And more than that, uh, Naomi actually acts in love towards her daughters-in-law. Just think about this. Uh, now, this is, it's, it's tempting, I think, to read verses uh, 8 through 13 that Naomi's just super bitter and scared. Uh, but the reality is she wants Orpah and Ruth's best. And really, I think what was best for them was to leave her and to go get married. Like, so just, just to understand the culture here, all right, if you are, um, if you are a widow uh, of a certain age, you can't get remarried. Okay? That's Naomi. Uh, Ruth and Orpah were still marryable. They could have left Naomi, stayed in Moab, gotten married, found rest, as Naomi says in verse, uh, verse 9. Um, life could have been good for them again. But if they go with Naomi to Israel, they are now foreign widows. And according to Deuteronomy, uh, Moabites were excluded from corporate worship for 10 generations. Nobody's going to marry them. And so Naomi cares enough to say, I don't care if I'm the one abandoned. I want what's best for you guys. Just think about that. In the middle of her pain, in the middle of one of the worst situations you can be in, she's able to love. She's able to act in love. God is providing her faith and love in her circumstances. He's sustaining her. He's giving her what she needs. Not to feel great, but to be faithful. And uh, just see for a second that the Lord is able even when he delays in taking your pain away, he's able to give you faith. He's able to give you love in your circumstances. There's a hymn uh, that says, In every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way. Then he is all my hope and stay. When you lose everything and you have Jesus, you realize 
that Jesus is all you need. He's able to sustain you. Whether you're dealing with a flat tire kind of providence or a funeral kind of providence this morning, come and rely upon God's grace. Don't run from it a minute. Don't don't get on don't run to your couch and Netflix and ice cream binges to numb yourself to the pain. Alright? God is able. He's able to give you grace. In Second Corinthians 13, he says to Paul, my, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness, in suffering. But God doesn't just give uh, Naomi this kind of faith and grace on her own. He gives her a faithful friend. Notice verse 13 or verse 14. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Don't hate on Orpah, okay? She did, she did, she did what was reasonable. She did, she did what, in fact, Naomi wanted her to do, all right? Uh, in fact, I think Orpah's included in here just to highlight how exceptional and ridiculous Ruth's friendship to Naomi was. Um, just, again, just think about what Ruth staying with Naomi would mean for her. She's not just going to be a widow who's poor now. She's going to be a widow who's poor in a foreign land where nobody ain't going to marry her. She's going to be stuck like this. And if she gets there and, they, and Naomi dies, what then? Right? She's all alone. Ruth is risking here. Um, and her words, though, are just, or, uh, sorry, verse 16. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more anything but death parts me from you. Notice the parallelism here. She's saying from in every aspect of life, from the roof over our heads, which may not exist because we're poor, to the graves we lie in, which might be very soon, I'm with you. In everything, I'm with you. I'm even changing my religion for you. Remember, she was a Moabite, right? She invokes God's name here. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So just, just, just consider for a moment, in the middle of this bitter providence, an incredible sign of God's favor. Uh, the tension between mother-in-law and daughter-in-law is almost stereotypical. Maybe you guys have siblings, uh, or, some, or you've seen this before, but uh, you've seen your, your, maybe your parents not get along with their in-laws or whatever. But the tension is just incredible. Uh, it's stereotypical. It's um, through the generations. Uh, Ruth is probably here the equivalent of a baby Christian. She's just converted. You know, I, I don't expect acts of faithfulness like this from baby Christians, right? Um, but in, in spite of all those things, uh, Naomi finds herself with someone who is outrageously and spectacularly faithful to her. And she never, never would have experienced that if life had been teaching. She never would have seen that token of love if life had been good. She finds a, the Proverbs say, a friend who sticks closer than a brother. She finds a fellow sufferer who wants more than just to escape their pain. So how does God deal with his, bitter, with his people and bitter providences? He gives them a faithful friend. He gives them someone uh, to be with them. Canyon. Maybe you're thinking, Leland, where's my Ruth, man? Where's mine? Um, let's, just, let's just 
look for a moment and see that what God did for Naomi in Ruth, in Ruth, in that moment in time, okay, he has done exponentially more for us in Christ. John 15 says, Jesus says to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, I've called you friends. Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 12 says, never will I leave you or forsake you. Christ, if you're a believer, if you've trusted Jesus, Christ has promised his presence in your life. He's promised his faithfulness to you. He's with you. And not only is he with you, he's not with you in this like vague, like, oh yeah, God up there, he, he's with me. No, no. Jesus has been human. He, in fact, he is human. Right now, he is fully human and fully God at God's right hand. He has suffered exactly how you suffered. He knows what it's like to weep at a graveside. He knows, he knows what it's like to suffer and die. He knows what it's like to have his soul in such agony that he sweats blood. He's been there. He's able. He's promised his faithfulness to you. God has given you a faithful friend. If you, can look, if you look around your life and nobody knows me, nobody gets it. God has given you a faithful friend. Rely upon him. Come to him. But notice, uh, oftentimes, uh, Jesus is the capital F faithful friend. Uh, oftentimes, God gives us lowercase f faithful friends in the middle of our sufferings. I just want to encourage you guys, uh, if you're struggling, uh, don't struggle alone. Um, there's a reason God has put other Christians in your life. He has given them to you to help share your burdens. Now, now, when we, now it's tempting when you suffer. To let everyone, you know, every person you meet know all about it, okay? And you don't want to go there, all right? Uh, but, man, if you're, if you're struggling with a secret sin, that's, if you, if there's something that's just eating you alive, take a risk and go tell someone. God intends to use people in your life as provisions to help you in the middle of your struggles. God gives bitter providences. He provides in the bitter providences. He has given us primarily the presence of his son Jesus. Uh, but as we see at the end of Ruth 1, God does not always immediately deliver from bitter providences. So Naomi and Ruth arrive uh, in verse 19 to town, and all of the, as one of my commentaries says, all the town gossips say that Naomi's back. And in verse 20, here's what Naomi says kind of tells us where she's at right now. She says, do not call me Naomi, which translated means pleasant, but call me Mara, which translated means bitter. My name is bitter, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Just notice uh, how overwhelmed she is in sorrow. She wants to be called bitter she, re- she remembers going away full with a full family, lots of potential for the future, and coming back empty. She even thinks, at the end of verse 21, that God is judging her. The, the Lord testifying against me, that's a, that's a Hebrew idiom for God is judging me. She even thinks that. That's how bad it is. I think the idea here is that uh, Naomi is drowning in the waters of her pain. She can't see clearly. Um, and I think what's just stirring and crazy, and again, I'd encourage you to read this whole book, but this book is going to end with Naomi with a grandbaby in her lap. It's going to end with all of her fortunes restored. And this grandbaby is not just going to be 
a future for her and a sign of God's favor. It's going to be King David's grandfather, which is going to place Naomi in the very line of people that leads to the Lord Jesus Christ. So all of a sudden, Naomi's not just going to have her fortunes restored. She's going to be included in God's plan for the entire world. That's where the book ends. It's going to be great. I can't wait to get there. That's not where chapter 1 ends. Um, Chapter 1 ends with, Call me Mara. I am so embittered that bitterness is my name. And I just think, guys, as a human being, man, we long for happy endings. God made us that way. It's real tempting to try to get away from the implications for us about where Naomi is is right now, what that might mean for our lives. Um, Sometimes, for reasons we don't understand, God allows his people to languish in sorrow. Whether that's for a short season, for a week, a month, whether it's for decades or a lifetime. There is is deliverance at the end. There's there's a day coming, right? When your providence is going to be perfect. You are going to have a new body. You're going to live in a new heavens and new earth. You're going to see the face of God. Every sorrow healed, if you know Jesus. Every single one. Joy unspeakable. All of your junk, you're delivered from it. But, but sometimes, the path there is full of sorrow. Um, and, and the gospel does not... Uh, some people think that the gospel contradicts this, that God has delivered me from sin and therefore life should be easy. But really the gospel actually reinforces this. Right? Jesus' life is not just a life and replacement of ours, it's a pattern for our lives. Jesus lived hard and he suffered and he won glory. Um, so what do, we do, what do we do with this? I just want to speak for five minutes. Uh, what do we do with the fact that it's very possible we are going to experience bitter providences? Whether this week it's bad meeting at work or whether it's some relationship frustration, or whether it's some real sorrow. Um, Let me me say a couple things. First, uh, we should embrace that the God who is responsible for our pain is doing so for our ultimate pleasure. Just notice, Naomi had to be widowed and lose her two sons to be included in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Just notice that be a person the Bible writes about, to be included in this grant, to be talked about for generations afterwards, right? She had, she had to suffer first. And the New Testament tells us that God takes our sufferings, this is uh, 2 Corinthians 4, and he works them and makes them a, an, an unbeatable weight of glory. Uh, here, uh, John Piper. Piper is very intense, but he, his, his, his preaching on this verse is incredible. He says, not only is all of your affliction momentary, not only is all your affliction light in comparison to eternity, but all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that. He goes on, he says, I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. I don't care if it was slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. It's not meaningless. Of course you can't see what it's doing. Don't look to what it seems. 
think life, uh, I don't know if you guys know what a mosaic is, but a mosaic is a, it's a big picture made of tiny little pictures. And uh, I think a lot of times in life, we have our face right here against something that looks really dark and bleak. If, if we had the ability to zoom out, we'd see its place. We'd see the beauty that's there. And one day you will. Think about that. Every frustration you have in your life, the things about yourself that you hate, the guilt, the nagging sense that you're not enough, the lonely nights, all of those things. If you are a Christian, if you know Jesus, God is taking every single one of them and he is working them in a particular way for your future glory. We don't, don't know how, we don't get the answers, but we can rest there. We can embrace that. Finally, I just say, this morning, afresh, embrace the faithful friend. So I typically tell people, uh, just as we close, uh, that the Chronicles of Narnia are required reading for every Christian. So go home and buy them. First of all, they are written at a like fourth grade reading level, so no excuses no matter where you are. Okay. Um, uh, but even more so, they relate astounding, incredible spiritual truths through, uh, through little stories. Uh, I would say uh, start with the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, I'd say almost everything in the book is rock solid except for one tiny little scene in the last book. But anyways, we can talk about it if you read it, okay? But one of my favorite Chronicles of Narnia is The Horse and His Boy. It's number three, okay? And uh, it tells the story of Shasta, a kid who has a really, really rough go of it. And uh, you, 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 you see his childhood upbringing. It's really tough. And you see uh, his journey, and it's always beset by danger. Things is always going wrong for Shasta. And uh, he ends up in a picture that looks much like his life. He's sitting on, on a horse that refuses to go for him, refuses to go fast. He's in the middle of a foggy place where he can't see anything. And he hears something giant and scary walking next to him. And that's just a really good picture of Shasta's life. And uh, he calls out to the, the giant scary thing and uh, asks him if it's a ghost. And the thing replies by breathing on him. All right? And I'll just read from there. It says, Shasta felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There it said, that's not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. Shasta was a little reassured by the breath, so he told how he'd never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. He told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and all their dangers in Tashban and about his night among the tombs and how beasts howled at him out of the desert. And he told about the heat and thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded his friend. And also how very long it was since he had anything to eat. <laughs> Sorry, that's hilarious. <laughs> All right. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I just told you there were at least two the first night, and there was only one. But he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And then Aslan, who in the story represents Jesus, who is a lion in the story, goes on and tells Shasta about how, in fact, he was the one 
caroling and guiding and protecting his whole journey. And even how Aslan was, in fact, the lion you do not remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. The whole time, all of his journeys, everything good, everything bad, Aslan was the lion. And that's what Ruth 1 is teaching us. At times when God is literally sending lions to chase us or feeding us to the lions, in fact, he himself is the lion. And he's guiding, protecting, helping, and leading our life to a place of glory and goodness. Whether it's this life or the life to come. If you have sorrows, your sorrows today, embrace him as your friend. Embrace the friends around you and he's given you. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we just thank you that you speak about difficulties of life, that your word does not leave us to wonder or guess or try to make meaning on our own, um, but you speak clearly about even the worst that life can bring. And we just pray this morning, I just pray for people in here who are suffering, comfort, courage, you indeed would be their faithful friend and you provide uh, people around them to encourage them. Pray you to uh, give us faith, help us to embrace what your word has said. Pray that.